Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Sanya Faruqi show. Uh, today in our series, not just about the Sharia, we have somebody joining in from Bangladesh, Shireen Parveen Haq. She's a women's rights activist working on gender, human rights, and development. She's the founder member of Nari Koko, where she has worked on as a volunteer since its founding in 1983. Currently, Shireen is an elected member of Naripoko's executive committee and the honorary coordinator of Naripoko's program on women's sexual and reproductive health and rights. At present, Shireen is also the honorary coordinator of Standing with Rohingya Women, Naripoko's engagement with the plight of over 1 million Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh and their pursuit of justice. Shireen has spearheaded the preparations of inputs for amicus curie observation to the International Criminal Court in support of the Chief Prosecutor's initiative to clean uh, jurisdiction through Bangladesh for the crime of forced deportation by Myanmar. She means the Bangladesh Civil Society Platform on Justice for Rohingya. Shireen, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the Sanya Faruqi show today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And I look forward to our conversation. Likewise. So Shireen, tell us a little about Nani Poko. You started it in 1983. It's been quite a while that you have been working. And uh, so tell us a little about the organization and the kind of work that you've been doing over the years. Okay, it's a very long story. I'll try and keep it short. Um, we started in 1983. It's a membership-based organization. But along the way, we realized that uh, there are many things we want to do, which requires some people to become full-time and you know, to have a proper office and et cetera, et cetera. So at one point, I think 10 years along the line, we um, started to apply for uh, funding support so that we could actually uh, employ people uh, on a full-time basis on different projects, et cetera. So the projects are all sort of the project ideas that are all generated by the membership through our weekly discussions. We have met every Tuesday since 1983, <laughs> except for except Eid and Christmas and Durga Puja and Bodha Punima. But otherwise we met every Tuesday. And now we are and now we are meeting digitally. So yeah, this year, yeah, yeah. This year very, very strange year. Um, so one of the first issues that actually we took up and uh, you know, it, it happened uh, very organically is uh, the issue of violence against women. And um, th so that is, that is one issue which has kind of stayed with us and will probably stay with us for a very long time because of um, there seems to be no respite to that. And second issue that we got very involved with is the issue of women's um, bodily integrity, health, uh, sexual, sexual health, reproductive health, all of those sort of in that cluster. Um, so that is another area in which we have done quite a bit of work. And other than that, we've also been engaged, but those are, some of that is very much work done in, within the project frameworks. So, you know, we design a project, somebody funds it, and then it at some point that ends, and then we look for other ways to continue the work. But then there are other um, activities that we've been involved in, which more like campaigns and, and advocacy campaigns and getting involved in different movements. And um, I think the first, uh, 
very big movement we got involved in was the movement for a secular state. And this happened in response to uh, the proposal for a constitutional amendment to make, to institutionalize a state religion and, uh, and to make Islam the state religion. And, you know, uh, like India, um, like all of South Asia, I suppose, religion is a very, very... Integral. Uh, no, no, I didn't mean that. Uh, sensitive issue. Mm. So no politicians, you know, don't want to uh, take, you know, confront that issue. And uh, so when this happened, when the proposal for institutionalizing a state religion was put forward as a bill in parliament, um, we were the first ones to come out in protest, followed by students and very, very much later politicians. Uh, and, and of course, the political uh, response or the political reaction was very much based on you know, po position and opposition politics rather than the issue itself. Mm -hmm. And um, so for us, the issue was very important that, you know, um, that we don't have something called state religion, that the state remains separate from religion. And, uh, but of course, we didn't win that one. But that is what took us out in a big way into the streets and, and uh, sort of, you know, gave us a public image of an organization that is prepared to fight. And uh, I, I think I should share with you a very funny anecdote. Um, we were so um, inexperienced at that time um, that, you know, we had ordered a a, a banner which was I can't remember exactly, but maybe 14 feet long, and um, and it said the banner said very clearly no politics with religion, or no religion in politics. However, way one translates it in Bangla, it said "Dharma niyarajniti chalbena." So uh, the very first uh, meeting, public meeting, we called for, we chose the martyrs uh, monument as a place. That's usually the place where a lot of protests take place. And then we were going to march with that banner at the end of the meeting from there to the press club. Not a very long march, but anyway. Um, so when we finished the meeting and we all lined up to <laughs> march with this banner and we banner was you know, on two sides of the banner, we had bamboo um, poles you know, holding it up. <clears throat> and so there were, you know, there were women holding it at both ends. And as we proceeded, you know, the wind caught <laughs> the banner is a cloth banner. So it became like a sailboat, you know. So before we knew it, we were running with the banner. Because, <laughs> and, and so from, from Shahid Minar to Press Club, we actually ran because <laughs> Only way to keep up with the with the wind, but what what the journalists saw was this amazing, <laughs> amazing <laughs> procession, amazing march by women who were so uh, you know <laughs> what is the word so militant in a way that yeah. you know here they were they were not just marching they were actually running. <laughs> They had no idea why we were running, but that's an image that went got across, and it gave us a certain uh, reputation which we had to live up to for a very long time. But it worked. It 
so so my my colleague said we told you we had to cut holes in the banner that's what you're normally supposed to do so the wind passes through rather than become a sail you know like a sail yeah. and i i thought oh this is such a beautiful banner why cut it up so i refused to make those holes <laughs> and that's why we ended up with that uh, anyway so that's that's uh, that's a period when we were clearly known as a very militant organization <laughs> and very <laughs> anyway so that was one major uh, uh, campaign which um, then we when we when we lost the when the bill went through in parliament we actually went uh, to court we went to court we um, filed a writ petition uh, against that but uh, even that didn't win that one either but anyway, so, so that was one movement. That was 1988. We were very young. We were only, literally five years old at that time. Mm -hmm. And then subsequently in 1990 and 91, and then finally in 97, 99, we were, became very involved with, the, with protesting the forced eviction of Brussels and the forced eviction of sex workers from Brussels. And uh, again, that also gave us a particular reputation uh, as, um, you know, the kind of typical question from journalists was, so um, you, support, you support prostitution? Mm -hmm. And we were like, no, we support the rights of women who are in sex work. Yeah. It, you know, it took a while, but actually one of the, one of the outcomes, I think, one of the positive outcomes of that whole movement was that forever since then, the word prostitute is not used in Bangladesh, in the media. We, the, you know, there's been a permanent shift, permanent um, shift to the language of sex work, which, you know, it changes the whole terms of the discussion and the, changes the discourse entirely. And I think that was uh, an important uh, milestone for us. And uh, anyway, so there are several things. And finally, the movement against acid violence. I think that was another one that Naipokko spearheaded. And uh, that also happened in a, in a, I don't know how to put it, in a, in a way, um, I, don't, I will not go into the details because that will take a long time. But what happened was that when we, the first workshop we held with, um, Acid survivors, and they were very young girls at that time. Um, we had deliberately kept the press out because we didn't want to sensationalize it, and we didn't want, you know, mugshots and, and all that. Um, but and because they were, they were most of them were not adults; they were accompanied by either a mother or a father or a brother. And on the second day uh, of this workshop when we had a session with the relatives who had come, we decided to have a separate session also with the fathers, the mothers or brothers who ever came. And at that, in that workshop, in that session, um, a number of the parents actually said, you know, people need to see what it does, what acid does to someone. And yeah. why are you, why do you want to hide? Why, you know, and so, they were confronting us, saying, why are you wanting to hide us? 
and you know it 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 uh, it really sort of I think uh, made us rethink that what we what were we actually doing? We were censoring on be you know on the on the assumption that they would not be able to handle if we the, put out. Yeah. yeah, and they were telling us that you know what is your problem? We are we want people to see what happens, and that was the first time I think Bangladesh saw the face of acid violence. What year was and this? This was 19, uh, I'm trying to remember now, 97 maybe? No, 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 95, 95. I think 99, yeah, I'm, I'm not good with, no. also, I mean, post COVID, but I forgot. mid 90s, early 90s is when this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so that was another big, big uh, movement we were involved with in, uh, Several things that that involved several things. One was that, you know, focus on the attack and not the burns. Focus on reconstructive surgery and not cosmetic surgery. Focus on, you know, various that that movement taught us many things actually. And um, focus on acid control and not, you know, not control over the women's movement, you know, mobility. So fo focus on the control of the substance. Um, one of the main things was when we met these young women, they would cover, as, as now everybody does after COVID, but at that time it was pre-COVID, you know, they would be covering themselves like, like niqabs, you know, completely covered their faces because, um, because of this idea that, you know, now I've become an ugly human being. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that, the workshop was about, you know, um, your beauty is within you. And if somebody has a problem with your face, that is not your problem. Mm -hmm. So it, it was encouraging women to actually, you know, take off the veil or whatever you want to call it. And um, giving them a sense that they are not just victims that they actually can become survivors. And some of them can even become activists. And as some of them did, actually, some of them did become activists in the movement against violence. So that was another aspect to that whole uh, movement. Anyway, so that, so and these are some of the uh, milestones, if you like. But yeah. there's still regular work that goes on in Naribukko, which is, you know, pursuing particular policy changes. We are also doing things in coalition with others. So we are members of the rape law reform campaign. We have been you know, members of the domestic violence, uh, uh, the demand for the Domestic Violence Act, which did finally happen after 10 years of uh, lobbying and working on that. And similar things that we also do with like-minded organizations, form coalitions and and pursue a particular, you know, specific goal. Yeah. So that's um, so that's how it is. More or less. Uh, but um, coming to you know the current situation in Bangladesh, I'm just going to you know give you a little bit of uh, stats that I've pulled up. It Bangladesh ranks 142 out of 167 countries in the Women, Peace, and Security Index. In 2017, just three years ago, the country ranked 127. And in 2019, there's been a sharp decline by 15 marks, uh, sorry, ranks. 
What do you think is leading to this increase in violence? And um, could you talk a little about, um, you know, what are the current challenges that you are also facing structurally and while working on women's rights and gender rights in the country? You know, what? one of the things we've always said is that every now and then there's a, a discussion about the increase in the, in the incidence of violence. And often we don't really know if there's an increase or there's an increase in reporting. And uh, for a long time, I think there has been a tendency to kind of glorify the past that these things didn't happen in the past, but it's happening now, which is not true. You know, I think violence and, and uh, male dominance, uh, male aggression has been part of our culture. Uh, this is one of the problems is we have people trying to hold up our culture as somehow, you know, these, these things didn't happen in those golden days. But, I, I, you know, the reality is that it's now the extent of that violence or the public nature of that violence or the, uh, uh, the intensity of that violence may have, may have varied. So even now when we say that uh, it has gone up in 2019, to what extent it has gone up, I don't know, because there is no real statistics, there's no real uh, data as such. So I'm also curious about where those statistics come from. But, um, but one thing one can say is it appears to me that certain forms of violence have gone up. For example, acid violence is actually on the decline. And that has to do with a, really concerted effort on the part of the Asset Survivors Foundation, part of the government, on the part of women's organizations in Russia. You know, it's a massive effort by lots of people. And so that has definitely going down. What has definitely gone up is gang rapes. And in my mind, you know, what triggers increase in a particular form of violence is not necessarily the same for all. So in the case of increase in gang rape since 2019, um, that part I'm not surprised because we've had a general breakdown in the rule of law. In 2018, in December 2018, we had an election where people were not able to vote. So we have a government which actually has come to power without people voting. It was a, a, there was a huge election scam. So as a result, you, they do not, um, well, I can't speak for them, but it appears that they don't feel, they don't feel they have to be accountable to, to, the, to the public on anything. And so there is a, uh, uh, what is it? How to put it? There is a culture of impunity for some people, people connected to the ruling party, people connected to clearly, you know, uh, clear locations of power. Um, there is impunity. So, in in the recent, in, I, I can't speak from 2019, but just 2020, looking at the gang rapes in 2020 that have happened and which sparked off a huge movement since uh, October, 
have been all committed by the student wing or the youth wing of the ruling party. Now that is definitely because there is a sense that we'll get away with it. But at the root of sexual violence, of course, there's a whole other culture of misogyny that drives sexual violence. That kind of, and that misogyny has been there in our culture, in our uh, politics, in our society for, you know, uh, I don't know, centuries maybe. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> so I think what has, may explain the increase in numbers, the increase in, in brutality, the increase in uh, kind of the brazenness. None of these people are even trying to hide. So the, some of these gang rape situations are where people are actually even videotaping themselves. And then even, you know, upload, uploading it. So the, so the increase in brazenness is also quite disturbing. And of course, the increase in brutality. Um, all of that has to do with a sense of impunity. Yeah, and corruption is a hindrance when it comes to enforcement of laws and, uh, you know... And access to justice, and access to justice. Corruption is a major obstacle in accessing justice. And um, corruption is at, at its peak, absolutely, um, in every sector. Every How sector. has it been during the pandemic, uh, during the lockdown, past one year? Certain surveys, and these are not very... Uh, very uh, uh, using words today. <laughs> the, the, the data is not that solid. It's because of the because of the limitations of how the, how the survey could be carried out. So some it's telephone service, but which indicate that domestic violence has gone up mm -hmm. during the pandemic. But during the pandemic, we are also seeing increase in gang rapes. So it's not just domestic violence. And the two are driven by very different triggers. Domestic violence has gone up and the explanations that are being given are that people are cooped up in, at home and uh, you know, sort of what used to be microaggressions are turning into violent attacks. And uh, and microaggressions from, um, for the slightest of uh, reasons, you know, um, the food is not cooked on time, or I don't know, literally a long list of silly reasons why microaggressions take place all the time, all year round. Now, though, what has happened during the pandemic is that that has, you know, escalated into, into violence. Whereas what the gang rape situation is different. It is actually, you know, groups of men who feel, uh, you know, that they can get away with the crime. Um, generally, sexual violence has to do with a sense of male entitlement that, you know, it's all right to invade a woman's body. Um, and just for the fun of it or whatever reason, and so that, that part, I think, is also increasing because there's no rule of law right now. People know they can get away with it, uh, etc. So that's how I would explain. Yeah. 
Um, you know, Bangladesh records the highest number of child marriages in Asia. And three years ago, um, the government legalized, um, you know, child marriage below the age of, age of 18 on special circumstances like unlawful pregnancies of girls. How do you see that, um, you know, working on gender and working as a women's rights activist? How has that been implemented or rather dealt with? We, we protested loudly when that happened. And uh, it happened just uh, shortly before International Women's Day, I remember that. And on International, just on the eve of International Women's Day, there are pro on the eve and on the day itself, there are programs that the government, especially the Ministry of Women and Children Affairs hosts and, and it's uh, usual for, you know, we are invited, all the women's organizations are invited, etc. We were the only organization which boycotted the government programs that year. Um, so it's, you know, it's like people are opposed to child marriage, but when push comes to shove, they're not prepared to take a stand on it. And, uh, the, and that is precisely what happened. The government did not face much of an opposition in reducing uh, the, you know, the age of uh, marriage. Is there any Sorry? sort of pressure to appease, uh, you know, religious beliefs on that? Or is it just plain? No, it had nothing to do with religion, that re reduction. Uh, religion did not play a role. What happened was that the global statistics came out, which put Bangladesh not in a very good light uh, on child marriage. And so you change the definition of child marriage. Thinking, okay, now that will change the uh, statistical position. Of course it wouldn't, but some, some dim-witted person thought that was a good idea. Um, but also because Because um, I actually had the chance to speak to the minister of, the then minister of women affairs uh, on this. And she herself felt a little bit helpless. She, I don't think she supported this, uh, this particular amendment, but um, because, and she's not a very powerful member of the cabinet. She wasn't. There were other more powerful members of the cabinet who were very, strong and I, particularly our minister of agriculture she was absolutely you know uh, determined about it and she said well, what is wrong with all of you my mother got married at the age of 14 and you know we all did fine uh, that was the kind of reasoning that was coming across but i think the main concern was what do we do with these young people eloping and what do we do with these young people eloping and then there's a pregnancy? Um, it's, it's that kind of um, conservative uh, reaction to, to that is, you know, okay, let's just get them married. That, as if that is the solution. So Shireen, um, you know, coming to the current uh, Rohingya crisis in Bangladesh, uh, you know, the liberation war, had already left a mark on the women of the country. And now with the Rohingya crisis, uh, with reports of uh, gender-based violence taking place, what are your opinion? And are you aware of, you know, what sort of gender-based violence that, that are taking place, um, you know, from within the camps and also the, uh, you know, the relocation from the camps to Bhasanchar? Are you aware about that? And how can it be dealt with? Okay. Um... 
since you mentioned the liberation war, one of the reasons why Naripakko did get involved with the uh, Rohingya uh, refugee issue is that, um, as you as you probably know, that during 1971, um, countless uh, women were subjected to sexual violence by members of the Pakistan army and their collaborators. And little has been done to actually stand by these women. So although the government of the newly formed, newly independent Bangladesh government, uh, within six days of victory on 22nd December declared that these women will be known as Birangona, which means woman warrior. And this was very much a well thought out uh, announcement, a move to actually prevent stigma and to prevent ostracization of these women. Because we know that in our culture, in, if there's an incident of sexual violence, it's the, it's the person subjected to the violence who's ostracized and who's stigmatized and who is, you know, um, often actually uh, thrown out of society, banished from the village, banished from families. So given that culture, this was an attempt to actually try and prevent that by giving them an honorific title. But unfortunately, what happened was that this title itself became a, a, an abuse. It became a, an abusive word. So to call someone a Birangona is actually to, to dishonor that person rather than, and, and, and you know that there's this whole notion, I think it cuts across South Asia and maybe other places as well, is that somehow sexual violence is tied up with honor. And yeah. you know, so that if you, have, if you have been subjected to sexual violence, you have lost your honor, you've, you've lost, for, and for that reason, your family has lost its honor, and for that reason, your village has lost its honor. And on a large scale, your nation has lost its honor. So there's that whole thing that has to be countered with some kind of counter narrative, like, you know, my, our honor does not lie in our genitalia, for example. And that, uh, you know, it, what, is a, what, is a, what is a war crime should not be referred to as a crime of honor. So when, um, and, and what has happened is that most of these women actually, uh, many of the women, I can't say most, were actually not accepted back by their families. They ended up in institutions, some ended up in brothels, um, and generally it's not been a good story. And only in 2011, in the uh, 40th year of our independence, Nari Pakur took up an initiative called the Forgotten Women of 1971. And we have reached out to as many women as we could, and we are providing, um, which is absolutely so little that one can't even mention it, providing a, a, a monthly uh, allowance, a monthly financial uh, benefit. We are trying to look after their health. And, but the main idea was that we would prepare a case for reparation. And that would involve actually also restoring their honor in real terms. Some of the women have actually said to, said to us, you know, we were raped in 71 by the Pakistan army. But since then, what have you people done to us? You've robbed us of our lives for the next 40 years. And so that, you know, that has remained with us as to how, um, 
how we didn't actually stand by them. And that is why when the Rohingya, uh, when this huge influx happened in 2017 of Rohingyas, um, and initially it was mostly women and children who came in. And so many of the women that I spoke to had suffered multiple rape, not just once, not just twice, not, not just by one person, by several people. And this is, this is what they, they had carried with them across the border, is, is that experience of brutal sexual violence. And that is when Naipokku thought, you know, we were not uh, around, we were not old enough in 71 to do something about the Bangladeshi women who had suffered. Let us not uh, repeat that mistake. And that is why standing with Rohingya women is, mm. the, is the name we gave to our initiative, is that let us make sure and stand by these women. And so that is partly what brought us into the whole Rohingya issue is, is that commonality of sexual violence. What was interestingly different was that these women who came across the border were um, able to talk about it, they were candid about it, and they were not trying to... The, the Bangladeshi women, it took 40 years to break their silence yeah. around it. But the Rohingya women were actually ready to talk about it, ready to tell the whole world what had happened to them and how it had happened and who had done it. So there was a big difference in that sense. And we felt our role would be to help amplify their voices, not only to the Bangladeshi public and the Bangladeshi media, but also as much as possible to the world. And that's kind of what we had focused on. But then of course, you know, as time went and as these people settled into camps and settled into, uh, and the camps began to reproduce the villages they had left behind in Myanmar, they began to become silent again. So, you know, the whole culture of village life in Myanmar was being reproduced in these camps. And so you had relatives around you, you had people you knew back there, and suddenly the women were no longer, you know, uh, coming forth in the way they were. As when I met women at the border when they crossed over. And the difference was actually quite remarkable, even just a year later. The other thing that happened as time went is that new incidents of violence they were being subjected to in the camps took prominence over what had happened earlier. So mm -hmm. 2019, when we are talking to Rohingya women, they are telling us about domestic violence in the camps. Rather, you know, so the, what had happened in, uh, in Myanmar in 2017, I won't say that it had disappeared. Yeah, Obviously, that it, it, it was. It, it, yeah, it had receded because, you know, new situations had happened, which were far more immediate. And the, the, this, was, this, was, this became a matter of concern. The, it was not one or two cases, one or two random cases. There seemed to be a pattern that many, many women were being uh, subjected to violence by their husbands, um, 
in, in, the, in this camp situation. And the camp situation is, I'm sure you've seen a lot of footage. It's undescribable how subhuman the conditions are in which um, the Rohingya people are living. It's yeah. crowded, it's, the sanitation is uh, far from, you know, what, uh, far from adequate. Water, running water facilities far from adequate. Uh, it's just not, well, obviously it's not a situation anybody opted for. It is a situation that they have landed in in trying to uh, escape uh, being killed. So uh, this is the situation. Um, the big organizations that are working in the camps like UNHCR and IOM, these are the two main uh, multilateral agencies which are leading the kind of operations um, in Cox's Bazaar and uh, which is spread, the camps are spread across a huge um, area of Cox's Bazaar district. And um, so they have been, they have taken note of that and, you know, and they have been trying to, to work through the different NGOs, they have uh, commissioned to work with them, etc., directly on trying to prevent uh, domestic violence. There have also been cases of rape in the camps, especially where women going out at night to use the toilet facilities have, um, have you know, have been uh, attacked by men in from within the camp. So another Rohingya man. Uh, so it's no longer Myanmar army. It's you know, it's our own men. Is what how they put it. It's our own men who are now attacking us. Mm -hmm. So, um, and this is of course not uh, surprising and it's not peculiar to the Rohingyas. This is what is happening in everywhere in the world is, you know, it's our own men who usually attack us and it's our own men who usually attack us without any weapons with just their bare hands. Yeah. Um, so this has been the situation. Now you asked also about Bhashancha, which yeah. has been, uh, which is a big issue right now for everyone, is the first assignment went out in December and the second most recently. Uh, one of the main concerns has been, are, is it voluntary or not? Are people yeah. actually moving there on the, of their own choice or not? And this is a difficult question to answer because the government of course claims it's voluntary. Many journalists who have been down there have also given uh, reports that is voluntary. I personally doubt that it's entirely voluntary, but I will not be surprised if there are also many who have volunteered to go simply to escape this kind of subhuman living conditions in the Coxibazar camps. And they, and they were promised a much you know, better, you know, more light and air, uh, blah, 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 blah. And, and uh, in fact, they have developed all these facilities in the island. And it is definitely in terms of uh, living conditions, far, far, far better. Not just 10% better, not just 50% better, but far, far, far better. Problem is, is this island secure? How safe is the island itself? Because it is a fairly newly formed island. It hasn't been around for very long, so it's still vulnerable in terms of uh, it, it, the, the geology of it. Yeah. 
And that has been the main concern by everyone is, should there be people living in that island at all? And uh, whether it's Rohingyas or anybody, should anybody be living in that island? So there are a lot of questions as to why the government actually decided to invest. The government has invested a huge amount of money to build that housing and, and, the, and the cycling shelters and the, you know, hospital site and you know all of that in the, in the island they have huge investment in infrastructure and so the question comes up is why did the government choose that island which is everybody is saying is precarious yeah. that is it's not yet well formed to in and has not stood the test of time so why did the government choose we have, nobody has received a proper adequate answer from the government on that and as a result, all the agents there, especially the UN agencies who've been working in Coxie Bazaar, um, have all along said, you know, they are, that they are concerned about the stability of this island itself and what would happen with a, a tsunami and what could happen with a tsunami, rather. And so they have been voicing their concerns throughout from the very beginning but the government has actually not paid attention to those concerns. Okay, on that note, Shireen, I'm going to um, have to wrap up as we've run out of time, but thank you so much for joining us and uh, you know for taking your time out and coming on uh, the Sanya Paroki show. For those of you who have uh, been watching, thank you so much for watching. I hope that you will subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you so much, and I'll see you again next time.